Perfect. This is part two in our study on the civil magistrate. Again, the civil magistrate is the government or the rulers or those instituted in power over us. And so we're going to start with a little bit of review because I definitely had to speed through last time. There's so much to discuss when it comes to involving the civil magistrate. And again, just talking about the relevance of this discussion. As you guys know, we are coming up on a election year, or we are in election year. Um, and so these topics um, are very important. And like I said last week, you know, I've been guilty of having that idolatry and putting too much faith in government and in the people that rule over us. And so it's important that we discuss some of these issues because we are going to have certainly conversations with fellow brothers and sisters and neighbors about the role of the government and in terms of uh, the Christian's uh, role and the Christian's obligations to it. So just as a little review, we talked about the spiritual foundations um, before we even encounter the subject of the civil magistrate. We talked about acknowledging God's power, Christ's kingship, we talked about uh, the Holy Spirit's desire to give us wisdom, and so therefore, as we uh, talk about some of these issues, constantly praying and asking the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom and understanding. Um, the Bible is not a how-to book. It's, it's not going to teach you exactly what to do in certain scenarios when it comes to uh, the American government, right? It's not going to give you exact... Uh, how-to answers on our specific context, right? So we got to draw those principles out of Scripture and pray and understand and, and ask the Holy Spirit to give us understanding. And then we have to also understand that the Christian life is one that is about suffering, about perseverance, and not one that necessarily we will conquer in this age, right? Jesus always talks about this age and the age to come, and so we look forward to the age to come when we conquer and we reign with Christ. And so this age is perhaps more about suffering and persevering through that suffering and imitating the life of Christ in that regard. So those are some of the spiritual foundations we looked at. We also looked at the historical difference between the Westminster Confession of Faith, the original one in 1646, and the 1689 London Confession, the Savoy, and also the American Westminster. You had in, does anyone remember, what was the difference between the original Westminster Confession of Faith and our London Baptist Confession of Faith? Anyone remember the major difference? Yes, Sydney. Yes, so Sydney got it, right? There was a lot of overlap between the state and the church. The Westminster Confession originally said that the state could suppress heresy, that they could punish blasphemy, that they could call synods, um, that they could call uh, the churches to come before them and basically figure out, hey, is this heretical or is this not? And we talked about how the Baptists were under that uh, understanding of the Westminster, and they were persecuted because of their understanding of credo-baptism, right? So Reformed Baptists historically have been against that Westminster understanding, and American Presbyterians dropped that, right? They dropped that whole section from their Westminster when they revised it and said, freedom for all denominations, right? The state should not be suppressing heresy. 
the state does not have the obligation or the authority to call sentence. So we looked at some of that historical difference between the original Westminster divines and their writing of the, the confession and then all the way down through history to where we are now in America with the London Baptist Confession. We also talked about the civil magistrate's ordination by God, right? The civil magistrate, the government, is ordained by God. It's not an accident. It's not ordained by man. Uh, we, we don't give the civil magistrate its authority. God gives the civil magistrate its authority. So we looked at the power of the sword to punish evil. The power of the sword comes from Romans 13, that language. It also, we looked at Genesis 4, where in the beginning of Scripture, God ordains that he is the one that is responsible for vengeance, right? If anyone kills Cain, right, after Cain had killed Abel, I will exact vengeance on him sevenfold, right? So it is in, it's within God's purview that he enacts vengeance. It's not our obligation. And Romans 12 builds on that, saying that vengeance is the Lord's and not ours. And then we saw in Genesis 9, the Noahic covenant, which we would call a covenant of common grace or a covenant of preserving grace. And this means that God will require a reckoning for the bloodshed of man, not necessarily from him primarily, but from man himself. So he gives man the authority to shed the blood of man if they are killing other men, right? So this is where we kind of get our understanding of capital punishment, right? If man kills someone else, then by man, his blood shall be shed. And so we see that the, the beginning of the framework of the understanding of, okay, God is ordaining a preserving, a common grace institution, which we see becoming the civil magistrate, as the power and the responsibility uh, to defend evil, to enact justice. Um, again, like Romans 12 says, it's not within our personal purview. It's not, we're not the ones that are supposed to enact judgment, right? Someone hurts us and then we go hurt them. No, we go to the lawful authorities, which is the state and the civil magistrate. And so again, yeah, Paul, Romans 12 through 13, he builds off this Genesis foundation. He uses a lot of the same language. And so he's not just speaking out of a vacuum. And it's not the first time in scripture that we see teaching on the civil magistrate. We see this all throughout scripture. So I know we rolled through that a little bit, especially at the end of two weeks ago. So any questions, maybe questions in regards to the Noahic Covenant, to Cain and Abel, to the institution of the civil magistrate that you guys had that have just been burning inside for the last two weeks? Because I know you've just probably been thinking nonstop about this stuff. If not, I'm going to think I just did a fantastic job. So I'm just going to give myself a pat on the back. <laughs> All right, well, we'll move on. We'll, we'll do a little bit of review. The state is ordained by God. And so the first paragraph of chapter 24 of the Confession says that God, the supreme Lord and king of all the world, hath ordained civil magistrates to be under him, over the people, for his own glory and the public good. And to this end hath armed them with the power of the sword for the defense and encouragement of them that do good and for the punishment of evildoers. Well, 
there's a big question here, right? We've, we talked about how God has ordained the civil magistrate. We talked about how they have the power of the sword to punish evil. But here's the question, right? How do we define evil, right? What, what, where is it, does this definition come from? We see in Scripture, Romans 13, 3 through 4, rulers are a terror to bad conduct. Uh, the magistrate is an avenger who carries out God's wrath on wrongdoers. 1 Peter 2.14 the magistrate or the rulers or the government is one that is to punish those who do evil. Proverbs 16, 12. It's an abomination for kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. And Deuteronomy 16, 18 through 19, God demands that Israel appoints judges and that they shall not pervert justice. So again, we might think, okay, that totally makes sense, right? Um, that's what the government's supposed to do. But we have to define what is evil, what is wrongdoing, what is injustice, right? Because, I mean, look at that prison. That's not a place you want to be, right? So we got to make sure that before we put someone in that kind of place, that we have our definition of evil and wrongdoing and injustice correct. So let me, let me ask you guys, as you think about that, what how does the civil magistrate define evil, wrongdoing, and injustice? Thinking as Christians. Yes, Richard. Yeah, so Richard, he's getting at a good point, right? Um, in our day and age, right, the culture kind of defines what is evil, right? We talk about uh, harmful language, um, language that causes harm, right? If you say someone is sinning because of a sexual relationship that they're in, well, that's harmful language, right? You, you should be ashamed of yourself. Um, so that's the culture defining evil. Um, it's a good point. So how, how should we, if we are to, let's say we're in government, or maybe we are speaking to someone in government, we're speaking to our local congressman, how do we explain to them, this is what I believe evil is, this is what I believe the law should be? Yeah, Sam. Yeah, so Sam, Sam's saying, well, we see from Scripture that the law of God, parts of it, right, are written on all humans' hearts. So, there is, in respect to that, right, we should think that our rulers and our government officials should probably know something of the law already, right? That's a good point. Yes, Dick. So, just to add to Sam, God's law... 
structures, moves with the political winds, uh, it's totally arbitrary. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. Dick's saying, hey, the, the a law should be absolute, right? Ideally, right? You want, want a law that's going to be changing uh, based on feelings, right? And that's what we see in our world is, is law and the definition of, of wrongdoing just changes based on how people feel, right? Um, all good answers. Um, and I think you guys are all correct, right? Wrongdoing should be defined by the natural and the moral law of God, right? This is, um, you might be discussing this topic with people that might disagree with the London Baptist view of government, right? If they believe that the, perhaps individuals might believe that we should just take the Mosaic law and just put it right into America, um, that we should become a theocracy like Israel. They might believe that we should take uh, a lot of those, you know, the general equity out of the Old Testament law um, in regards to some of the um, judicial laws and slap that right into American law, right? So some of those opponents might accuse the London Baptist conf- uh, confession or that position of saying, well, then by what standard do we, does a civil magistrate create law, create legislation? And so it's important that we, we say with them, right, no, it is the law of God that is the standard for the civil magistrate's law. But that, that doesn't solve all the problems, right? But we have to make sure that it is the moral law of God that is the absolute, right? The absolute rock by which all legislation and all law is crafted on. So Romans 2.15 talks about non-believers. They have natural law written on their hearts. So there's a kind of talking about that two-edged sword there, the two-edged, you know, problem, right? We should and we can call magistrates to repentance and belief in the gospel. But we also, we think of like John the Baptist that Kem was teaching about, right? He called Herod to repentance. He said, you were committing adultery. um, And he suffered the consequences for that. Um, But we should also utilize wisdom, reason, logic as Christians in the public sphere, Um, I think of Acts 17 being a really pivotal text for this, right? Paul isn't necessarily um, talking about judicial or um, he's not talking about the magistrate necessarily in this text. But what he is doing is he's using non-Christian wisdom uh, to influence Athenians, but he's still clear and points to the gospel, right? So he says, like, your poets have said um, in him, in God, we move and breathe and have our being, right? So he sort of, he doesn't just quote the Ten Commandments, quote the Gospel and say, all right, that's it. Um, No, he works with wisdom and reason when talking about um, some of these things to the Athenians. And so the magistrate is not always going to be Christian, right? We're not always going to have a Christian, or I I don't know if we've had a Christian president in a while, right? Um, And so when we're talking to civil magistrates, we're not just going to be able to quote the Ten Commandments and say, enact those and we're done, right? There's so much wisdom and so much uh, extra things, extra, uh, you know, how we apply the law that comes after that, that we have to use. But that absolute dependence 
on the moral law of God as we see in the Ten Commandments is really important. Any questions on that? Some of you may have heard of, um, or I got questions uh, two weeks ago about you know, the two kingdom doctrine, right? The two kingdom understanding of our world, right? That there is a sacred kingdom or the kingdom of uh, Christ in the church and then there's the common kingdom, right? So Christ rules both kingdoms, but he rules them differently. The state is ordained to rule the common kingdom and Christ rules the, um, the sacred, the church kingdom, and he institutes its own government, right? So we two... We see two separate governments there. And that's the common misconception is that, well, if the civil magistrate doesn't, you know, if they aren't influenced by the church, right, then by what standard do they rule? And it's still by the law of God. It's just in a different sense than we see in the church. Here's an example. Uh, Amos. Go ahead and actually turn with me to Amos. It might take you a bit to find. It's a small little book in the Minor Prophets next to Hosea and Joel. And here we see uh, God's judgment, not only of the nations, but also of the people of God. So we can take some of this, we can take this principle and apply it to our day, right? How does God govern within the church versus God governing the nations outside of the church, right? And so first he starts out with the judgment of Israel's neighbors. And he look, look with me at verse 11. Amos 1, verse 11. Here's some of the reasons that he cast judgment on Israel's neighbors, pagan neighbors, right? Not Christian nations. Uh, Because he, Edom, uh, pursued his brother with the sword and he cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually. So Edom has uh, enacted war uh, with their brother and they've done it without pity, right? And we think about, we're going to talk about war in just a second, right? It's a, it's a, wrong for the civil magistrates, wrong for governments to enact war um, and do so in ways that are just above and beyond, right? Um, If you're just power hungry and you want more territory, think of Hitler, right? The way he enacted war was wrong. And that's what God here is calling Edom to, is saying you've cast off all pity when you went to war with your brother. Look with me at verse 13. Uh, They ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. So there we go. We see wrongful reasons for going to war. But then he turns and he says, the judgment on Judah, so God's people. And he says in verse 4 that he is enacting three transgressions of Judah. And for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord, and not kept his statutes. Something that he doesn't say about the pagan nations, right? So there's a distinction. And then in verse 7, all the way at the end, he judges them for saying that my holy name is profaned. So we see a distinction here 
and we can utilize this when we think about the, the church and the state versus Israel and all the other nations, right? Is that God governs the people of God in a different way. He holds them to a higher standard than he does the nations. And this gets at our distinction, right, between the first table of the moral law and the second table, right? Uh, profaning his holy name is a first table, right? It's within that first four commandments of God. Whereas the nations, it's, pursue, it's uh, their breaking of the second table of the commandment. Do not murder. Um, do not covet, right? They were wanting to enlarge their border. Um, so we, I think that's helpful as we think about that distinction. Yeah, Pastor Nathan. Yeah. I, could I have a clarification of what you said? Yeah. God holds them to a different standard or a higher standard. Uh, and we need to be careful that we, we understand that we can look at things temporally in regards to this life, and we can think of things or look at things in regards to salvation and eternity. And that God judges or rules this world per the terms of common grace, which are for the preserving of order and morality and life here in this life so that the gospel can go forth. And that is, that is different than how he governs and judges in, regard, in regards to redemption. So that in one sense, we're all held to the same standard, right? <laughs> like God is going to judge everyone the same way, right? It doesn't matter Christian, non-Christian, nation, or individual. We're just looking at it from two different perspectives, from temporally in regards to the nation state versus in the church or redemptively. And, and those distinctions are important. That's a great point. And, and clarification, yes. So when I'm talking about judgment, it is that temporal judgment, right? The power of the sword is temporal judgment. Capital punishment is temporal punishment. Um, it, it lasts in this lifetime. Whereas the church is given, right, the keys to the kingdom, right? So it's, it's an eternal punishment. Um, and so that's what I mean, you're right, when I say the people of God are held to a higher standard. It's in regards to the fact that they are held to the standard of eternal judgment, right? Um, not necessarily to the temporal judgment that the nations are held to. Any questions? I know that's a lot. But I think it's important as we think about that distinction between the definition of, of wrongdoing and evil in regards to outside the people of God to inside the people of God. Yes? We just covered this in first Yes. It's about, I was uh, about to get there, right? Yeah, where it's, you know, Paul says, who, who are we to judge those outside of the church, right? We're to judge those inside the church. And of course, he's not saying, okay, we'll just let the government do whatever we want. Um, but I think he's, what he's getting at is that there is a uh, higher uh, judgment for those inside the church, and you can hold them and have power over people in the church that you don't have necessarily for those in the state. Yes, Hans. Um, I don't know if this is what you're specifically thinking about or just preparation. But if you have a, do you have any like pragmatic thoughts on how we appeal to a secular government 
shows the world we have added that doesn't bother me at all. Like this, you know, I'm not going to lose votes if I don't get this. Like, you, you, you know how black people yeah. are. How, how do we come to people and say, you don't believe what I believe, but you should think this? Yes, that's a great uh, question, right? Hans is asking, well, how do, we, how do we do this practically? How do we talk to government authorities and say, hey, you need to obey the law of God, right? But is that all we say? Right? Do we just say, here's the Ten Commandments, this is not in the, you know, you're not following the Ten Commandments, therefore get it right. I think of the topic of abortion, right? Abortion, thou shalt not murder. We clearly think that abortion is murder, and it's wrong, right? But if that's all we say in our arguments with people, we're not going to get very far, right? There are tons of uh, natural law and wisdom ways to talk about abortion, um, that the harm that it does to the woman, mentally, physically, right? The, the harm that it does to society with the, just the breaking of families and the breaking off of you know, marriage from procreation. Uh, there's so many ways that we can talk about abortion that can convince even non-Christians that it's a wrongful practice. Um, and so that maybe answers your question a little bit, is, is we can utilize wisdom um, and natural law, and, and general revelation through creation, right, on the results of abortion, to talk to non-believers about abortion. Yes. Yeah, Karen? I believe the PCA recently sent a letter to the government on the soul drainage issue. Yeah, that's a great point, right? So the Presbyterian Church of America uh, issued a statement calling out the government and saying, hey, you know, this, the transgenderism, right, is really bad for society. Not only is it against the law of God, right? Uh, it's not only uh, an affront to the Mago Dei, but we can also point to societal effects of doing this, right? There, there, if we, I mean... Yeah, you could go on and on about the, the issues that it provides to, or the issues that it gives to children who have to undergo some of those things um, and the parenting involved and all that. Yeah. Yes? Students still aren't we dealing with a distinction in the sense that there's moral laws like abortion, for example, and the state is absolutely obligated to obey the moral laws of God. That's different than saying to the state, like writing a letter saying, Oh, well, you, you allow graven uh, images, um, and that's the state, they should punish those who make graven images. Mm-hmm. That's completely different. Yep. Or, oh, the state, you're not, you're not enforcing the worship of the one true God. That's, that's entirely different, and obviously what we're saying is that the state does not enforce the first table of the law. The second table of the law, absolutely, and we are to call the state to enforce that second table. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's the first table, second table, so important, right? Because you see God has ordained civil magistrate government and he's ordained church government, right? So what's the church government for if the state is also supposed to enforce the first table, right? Um, any last questions before we move to the next section? All right, so now we're going to talk about Christians in government, right? What's our role in government? And if, sorry if I triggered any of you with that 1040 income tax 
statement there. <sighs> Tax season, guys. Get those in. Um, the second paragraph of chapter 24 says, It is lawful for Christians to accept and execute the office of a magistrate when called thereunto, in the mag- management whereof as they ought, especially to maintain, just, maintain justice and peace according to the wholesome laws of each kingdom and commonwealth, so that for that end they may lawfully now, under the New Testament, wage war upon just and necessary occasions. So this paragraph is virtually the same as in the Westminster. They didn't really change anything. Um, Both of them are in response to the historical Anabaptist who claimed that Christian, you know, the civil civil government is evil and Christians should have no part in it. Um, And there are definitely those with Anabaptist leanings in our, uh, in in America today, who say that Christians should have no role in that government. Um, They can't even serve as governors or as local legislatures. Um, And so that's the historical context to writing this part in the confession. 2 Samuel 23, 3 and 4 says that when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, God dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. So we see that it is a good thing, like a Christian can serve in government and it can be God-honoring. It can be for good, right? Um, We think of ordained kings like David, who ruled as a magistrate over men. Uh, We think about Nehemiah, who was the cupbearer to the king, Right? He was in charge of protecting the king from getting poisoned. He was also the shortest man in the Bible. Nehemiah. Man. Tough crowd. Wow. <laughs> um, you have uh, Daniel who uh, served Nebuchadnezzar. He interpreted his dreams. Um, he was uh, you know, one of the, the wise men in his court. Uh, We think of Joseph, who served in the courts of Pharaoh, the first tennis match in history. (sighs) Man. Um, Joseph served in the courts of Pharaoh, right? He was second in command. And this is after he had been wrongfully imprisoned, right? All of these guys who served in these pagan governments had instances where they were wrongly imprisoned, uh, where they were wrongfully accused, right? So they were on both sides. Not only were they in a high standing in government, they were also imprisoned wrongfully. Um, so we see that if, it was, if it's wrong for Christians, if it's wrong for God-fearing men to be in government, then we have examples throughout the, all of Scripture of these men uh, not only serving in government, but doing good things and doing the will of God um, in those positions. And so I think that that leads towards why our confession says it is lawful for Christians to serve in government. Jeremiah 29.7, a really important verse, speaking to the exiled Jews in Babylon, says to seek the welfare of the Babylonian city. Right? Uh, not to just wait until you're uh, uh, restored, right? Not to, to wait until God saves you, but to seek the welfare of the Babylonian city. In its welfare, you will find welfare. 
right? And then he implores them to pray on their behalf, right? So this is not a disposition towards government that I think would be negative toward having Christians in government, right? If there's Christians in government, that will no doubt help our nation, and we should pray for that. Um, we think of uh, Jesus. He was uh, not against Christians in government, and he was certainly no pacifist at all. One of the proof texts that the confession talks about is Luke 3.14, where Jesus instructs the soldiers to continue doing their job. And he instructs them to do their job and to be content with their wages and to not extort money from anybody, right? So he's saying, like, your job is good. It's okay to do your job, but just do it justly. Do it rightly. Um, He never tells Caesar, and he certainly doesn't tell the taxpayers to quit their job. I spelled quit wrong, but it's all good. Um, But he exhorts them to do it justly, right? Yes, pastor. Oh, good call. He does instruct them to do it elsewhere, I believe so. Well, maybe I'm thinking uh, the centurion. That's where I'm mixing it up. Um, He doesn't instruct the centurion that comes to him, and that's in Luke 7, which actually I want to turn there because I think that's a really important text. Luke chapter 7. So, yeah, sorry about that. That clarification. John the Baptist is the one that instructs soldiers to continue doing their job. In Luke 14, but in Luke 7, Jesus encounters the centurion who is asking that his servant be healed. And he says to him, well, the centurion says to Jesus in verse number 7, Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another one, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. So in response to the centurion talking about lawful authority, Jesus says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. So this centurion, a soldier, right? Jesus doesn't tell him, hey, he's working for the Roman government. And there's definitely some iffy situations with how they were utilizing their military. But he doesn't tell him to quit his job. In fact, he says, out of all the Jews, God's chosen people, I have not found faith like yours. And that's in response to him talking about lawful authority. So I think that's an important passage. Um, Any questions in regards to that? Yes, Kaysen. The last uh, sentence of this paragraph That's a great question, Kaysen. Um, he's asking, actually, what was the first part? Say, say it again. Just what the waging war means. Yes, what does it mean to wage war? This was a discussion point that I wanted to have, right? It's a very uh, interesting part of this paragraph, right? Okay, we can wage just war, but what is just war, right? The confession doesn't go on to clarify. It just lays it out there, and then we're like, whoa, what do we do with this? 
Kem, you had something? That's a great question. Kem's asking, well, when, who are we called to execute and accept the office of a magistrate? I would think that, um, you know, when you're talking about lawful government authority, that would be a calling of, depending on your type of government, right? Because we think in a democracy, okay, that's a calling of the people, but this wasn't necessarily written for only democracies. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think, um, again, that's where wisdom has to come into play because there's definitely, it gets into when do we disobey and when do we not view the person who claims power to actually be in power when they're not upholding um, righteousness, right? Sam, you got a, you got a thought on that? So whenever I first read this, initially, I kind of glazed over it, but like, I, I kind of understood that the war in the sense of how we think of need of our like, calling in the sense of like, you know, That's a good thought. Yeah, it could be a liberty of conscience issue. Um, you know, talking about those individual callings. Some people are not called to be in government and to be a magistrate. Yes, Jacob. It definitely makes it a lot easier if it's a democratic, you know, calling, right? Because you can be like, well, the will of the people called me. So that's a pretty clear temporal call, absolutely. But it does make it tricky when it's maybe a dictator or maybe it's a Roman emperor, right? Yes. But even still, they're calling you to do it, you know, whether it's the king that calls or whether it's the people who call. True, yeah. Um, it's still, you know, nobody appoints 
and people try. That's a great point. And that's, that's where that wisdom issue comes in is because determining whether or not someone has been called to uh, govern and called to that authority. Uh, let me go Richard and then Jacob. Richard? Yeah, that's great. I mean, that historical context is so important. Um, you know, they, and I think that's why they really didn't change anything in this paragraph with the Westminster, because they were really trying to distinguish themselves from that Anabaptist view. Jacob? Absolutely. Yeah, we see that. Um, I, I was going to, I'm not sure, you may not have time to get to that, but you, we think of in the Old Testament, one of the signs of judgment on the nation of Israel is that he takes away mighty men and, and men of you know, valor and fighting men, right? So that's one of the judgments is he takes away that protection. So it's that idea that you know, protection and having soldiers and warriors is a good thing. Chandler, last question here before we got finished. Great comment. Who, who is authorized to enact or declare war in our nation? Who said that? Yeah, Jacob said Congress, right? Not the president. All right, there's an issue right there, right? So this does matter, though, because, again, I have uh, individuals in my family who, uh, not in the military now, but were, um, and you probably know individuals who are in the army or maybe even in the reserves or something like that. Uh, men, you know, my age, right, can get drafted. So this is a uh, important discussion to have, right? What is just war? And I think one of the things maybe to tee up, you know, next week's discussion is that 
um, war has to be uh, declared by a lawful authority. So it, it begins with who is that lawful authority, and then second, is this a just war? Yes, Pastor Nathan. Not to open a can of worms here, but but you might. I'm going to open a can of worms. Okay. <laughs> this is why the distinction between church and state is so important. If you look at Matthew chapter five and you see the ethics there. Give to those who want to borrow. Turn the other cheek. If they want you to go one mile, go two. Forgive, right? Everything. That is the ethic for the church and for the Christian. That is not the ethic of the state. And I think there's a lot of confusion when Christians maybe out of good intentions want to say, you know, there needs to be uh, economic equality. There needs to be health care for all. Uh, there needs to be, you know, all of these socialistic type things building off of the Matthew 5 ethic, applying that to the state when that is applied to the individual Christian. Because if you take Matthew 5 and say, this is the rule of the state, you've got no place for just war. Mm -hmm. You've got no place for war at all. Yep. Because uh, war is not a Christian virtue. Mm -hmm. But it is, in God's common grace, um, uh, allowable and even and supported. Um, by, the, by the word of God and by the rule of God over the common Yep, that's a great point. And, that, and we will talk about that next week because the, the third paragraph really gets into uh, our, the reason why we submit. Um, and, and that's when we get to the fun stuff of, you know, when, when to not submit and when to resist. Um, and, and getting at that, right, a lot of it has to come down with the public versus your personal duties in relation to the Sixth Commandment, right? Thou shalt not murder. That's a binding, that's an authoritative, that's an absolute commandment. But the very next chapter, in Exodus 21, he details that judges can uh, perform capital punishment on certain individuals because of the law, right? So there is a rightful way to kill, and there is a wrong way to kill. And so that's where it gets to that personal and private duty, that distinction between church and state in those duties. So, last question, Dick, because I really want to hear what you got to say. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's, that's a big distinction. Again, that church-state, Israel, other nations, you know, distinction. Um, because, yeah, in the Old Testament, in some respect, it was a little easier. You know, all right, God said, go to war with them. All right, we'll do it. And then sometimes Israel went to war when God didn't say, and they lost miserably, right? So it was, it was very cut and dry. Uh, whereas now in the New Testament, it's like, well, hold up, right? We have that Sermon on the Mount, you know, ethic of turning the other cheek. How do we turn the other cheek in warfare, right? Not exactly uh, possible, not exactly advisable. Um, so it does, it gets at that, you know, church, state, public versus private obligations. Uh, but again, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more. I, I anticipated there was going to be a lot of good discussion, and there's just so many... Uh, questions and comments and I love that so I think uh, that was really good just again to get your brains working on these things I love studying it just because of you know it, it does matter and it matters to 
you know, our personal um, lives and how we uh, interact with, you know, individuals that we know in the military. So we've seen that God's moral natural law determines the law of magistrates, right? It's not some other law. Um, we've seen that the Christian Christians can lawfully serve in government and faithfully serve God and their neighbors while doing it. And then uh, we've started to begin talking about why war is justified if it's lawfully in- entered into. And then we didn't even talk about the godly restraint used during it, right? Okay, we've gotten into war. Now how do we do it, right? So there's plenty of issues with that. Um, so up next, we'll talk about why and how should Christians submit to government and when they should resist. So the fun stuff. I mean, it's all been fun, but it'll get a little bit funner. No. All right. I should have cut the recording right there. Uh, let, me, let me pray, and uh, we'll be dismissed and go to Lord's Day worship. Father, we, we thank you that your scriptures do indeed give us clear principles on how we are um, to act um, as, as Christians, as um, people that believe that uh, we are to be different from the world. We are to exercise restraint. We are to exercise wisdom in certain regards that the, the world doesn't. Um, and so, Lord, we thank you that you've laid out principles and you've given your scripture to guide us. Um, even though it hasn't give us, given us all the answers, we know that um, if we seek wisdom from you, if we pray for it, that, that you will provide. And so, Lord, we, we ask that you would um, help us to be quick to seek wisdom from you and not to just trust in our own power and our own understanding as we um, encounter the difficult situations um, that we have in this country and in this, in this world in relation to the government and war. So pray for all these things, Lord. Prepare our hearts as we uh, turn to the worship of you um, in worship. In Jesus' name, amen.